All right, complaints. Yeah, I don't want that. I, I am not working today. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to um, gather together corporately as a body of believers to study the Bible, to hear from you, Lord, as we know that your word is powerful. It's, it pierces through every part in our bodies, Lord, every part, every soul. And, and uh, Lord, we want to just lay our hearts before you now and ask that you speak to us, Lord. And so uh, have your way in us this morning, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. We all said, amen. Why don't you guys greet each other before we start? It's always a blessing to be here with you guys. Um, it's great to, you know, have the opportunity to come and share the word with you. Uh, your pastor is out in Israel with a group of you out there, a group of the, you know, from here. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. And so to this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you guys to Romans chapter 8. If you guys turn to Romans chapter 8, uh, I'll be looking at verses 31 through 39. And the title of my message this morning is a love or uh, a love that conquers all. And we're going to be looking at a very important section there in the book of Romans. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 31 to 39, and then uh, we'll, we'll start our study this morning. Paul writes in verse 31 of chapter 8 of Romans, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine or nakedness, peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 1937, the great Golden Gate Bridge was completed. They say that it cost over $35 million to complete. And it was actually completed into two phases. The first phase, and it was a very slow phase, the second was more rapidly. And, and the reason why it was much more faster in the second phase, because of the first phase, unfortunately, they did not set up a safety net in the first phase. And so unfortunately, many, they say about 23 men, fell to their death because there was nothing securing them as they were working on this bridge. The second phase, which was the final uh, section of the project, they actually installed a safety net underneath this, where the workers were climbing up on these huge uh, pieces of metal to kind of finish off this bridge, and only 10 of them fell on this net, and they were saved from certain death. When the safety net was installed, they said 20, the, the, the work increased by 25%. Why did it increase by 25%? Well, because the men that fell in the, in the, in the, on the net, actually the ones working as well, were assured of their security and they were free to wholeheartedly serve the project. They were secured. You know, when it comes to security, security is a critical element in life, isn't it? I mean, we all want to feel secure, Right? I mean, right now, we're living in a very insecure world. I mean, we see the things that happen in our world today. Uh, parents are scared to send ki their kids to school because there's no security there. They, they feel like somebody's going to come up to that school, walk up in there, and shoot people. There's a lack of security, right? 
Uh, even when the, the terrorists were, were really going crazy and bombing, you know, a variety of different airports and, and airplanes hijacked and all of that, all of a sudden we start feeling insecure about flying. In fact, I knew people that don't fly to this day because of that. And so what happens then is that they established a security uh, team at every airport. So when you go, go to the airport, you're dropped off, you feel very secured when you see the, the, the police there, uh, you know, gunned up and everything as you walk through those doors to go into your checkout or check-in and as you go through the TSA line and all of that you're starting to feel a little bit more secure because now you're surrounded by more security perhaps it's on the personal level maybe it's more of a, on a personal level when it comes to security perhaps you live in insecurity because you've been a victim of a crime you've been robbed before and now you don't trust people you're afraid and so you live in this insecurity on a personal level, perhaps you live in insecurity because you have been, uh, or, or rather, because of, of your marriage. It's a marital security that you're lacking. Or perhaps it's job security. You realize that you have little or no security in those areas where you need it most. So when we talk about security, one thing that comes to my mind is this section here in the book of Romans. Because fortunately, in the single area that truly matters most is your relationship with God. And what I mean by that is that you can have ultimate security in Christ. And this is what Paul talks about. And this is what I want to share with you this morning is about, about the security of God's love. I think Christians lack that at times. One person described the love of God in this way. He said that the love of God is like the Amazon River flowing down to water one daisy. Think about that. It's like the Amazon River flowing down to water one daisy. The security of God's love. The love of God is a big subject in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you are confronted with the love of God in a variety of ways. In the way he actually intervened in the lives of men and women in Scripture. But the person I believe that came to total grips with the love of God is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle came to grips with the love of God. How do I know that? Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He said, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, he said. What an amazing declaration. Paul hated Christians, remember? He hated Christians. He threw them in jail. He persecuted them. But he knew that God had mercy on him. And because of God's love, he was given a second chance. And many of you here have been given a second chance. You know who you were before you were a Christian. You, perhaps you hated Christians at one time. And now as, as a Christian, you look back and you think back and you're like, man, I can't believe the person that I was. The love of God gave you that second chance. And Paul the Apostle came to grips with the love of God. And here we see in chapter 8, chapter 8 of Romans is a big chapter. And although we don't have time to go through the entire chapter, I'm only taking the end of this chapter. The chapter 8 is where Paul shares something super important. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, may be the most com uh, comforting and encouraging passage in the entire Bible. There are three big no-nos in this chapter. I, I call them the three big no-nos of the Christian life. And I'm going to actually go through these big no-nos. One is no opposition, no condemnation, no separation. You have to come to grips with these things. You have to walk out of here this morning and you have to be convinced in these three big no-nos. Because, see, the enemy, the devil, will hit you with condemnation. The enemy will hit you with opposition. And the enemy will try to separate you from the love of God. And so you need to understand that these three big no-nos are huge in the Christian life. And so as we see here in chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, Paul will declare these three big no-nos. You know, verses 1 through 30, the very first part of chapter 8 here, Paul tells us that we have been adopted he tells us that glory awaits. He tells us that God works all things. He paints a big, quick picture of God's sovereignty. And then he talks about the reality of the Christian life, that we are more than conquerors. And he tells us why we are more than conquerors. His answer is the high point, the grand truth of the Christian life. And that is what we're going to pick up here in verse 31. The very first thing that we can come to and say, this is a big no-no in the Christian life, is this, no opposition. What do you mean by that? Well, we see here very quickly that in verses 31 to 35, 
This is a question and answer format that Paul gives us in these few verses. In fact, there are seven questions, seven questions Paul asks in this section from verse 31 to 35. The very first question is this, what shall we say to these things? What things? The things he said before, chapter 8, verses 1, all the way to chapter, or verse 30. So what does he say? Paul is astounded by God's condition, unconditional love. And he's calling out his readers to respond to that. You know, this is an important part because it is necessary for us uh, to, to say something in response to the Bible, to God's Word. When you read the Bible, God wants you to respond to it. You see, God's Word is not information to, to be filed away. The Word of God is given to us to act upon and to obey. A, a lot of us open our Bibles, we'll read some cool verses, we'll, we'll perhaps put them on our, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in our house, we'll, we'll paint them on our wall, but we don't do what the Bible says. Uh, you know, James tells us this. He says in James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. So we see that Paul says, What shall we say to these things? Respond to this, he says. A second question, notice what he says in verse 31. He says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? I love that. Notice Paul doesn't ask the question, who is against us? He didn't say that. He says, he qualifies the question with the phrase, if God is for us. Now let me explain this verse for you real quickly. The Greek word if is, a term of un, is not a term of uncertainty, but of certainty. What Paul is saying is this, if God is working on our behalf, and he is working on our behalf, he is, then who could succeed in opposing us, is what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's not like he's questioning if God is for us. No, since God is for us, he says, who can be against us? In spite of who or what comes against you, God is for you. Isn't that great? I mean, that is a wonderful truth of the Christian life, that God is not against you. Don't you feel like sometimes he is, but he's not? See, the enemy would love to tell you, God is not for you. He hates you. You're a bad Christian. And all of a sudden you begin to believe the lies of the enemy. Paul tells us very clearly here that since he's for us, it's a fact that God, who can oppose you? Who can go against you? And notice he's speaking to believers. Us. He's speaking to believers. He's not talking about just, in general, just non-Christian Christian He's speaking to believers, and he's been doing this in chapter 8 from verse 1, verse 12, verse 14, 24, 26, 28, and this section. It's all about us, 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 us. So the context is speaking to Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here, don't tune me out, because this message is for you, and I'll, and I'll kind of get there here in a moment. But to know that God is for us, I believe, is a huge relief. Paul already made reference to this truth in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. When he, when he says all things work together for good. So this clearly shows that God works for our good and is not against us. It also emphasizes that this is a continuing activity of God. With all of the crazy things that happen in our lives, God can take those things and work something good out of it. That's something that God can do. You will always be led to victory in Christ because God is for us. Now, the only time that God is ever against you is when you are in rebellion against God. The only time God goes against you is when you are in sin and not willing to repent. That's the only time you see God going against you. We have that example in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have this, notice, against you, that you have left your first love, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Very clearly, makes, Jesus makes it very clear that he has something against that church. And he says it clearly that if they repent, 
that going against them will stop. But if they don't repent, Jesus will be so against them that he will remove their lampstand from their place. The same thing applies to us. Perhaps you have a prodigal right now. You have a son, a daughter who are just living a wild life. You know they've come to Christ. You know they've been to church. You know they know the gospel. Listen, God is big enough to get them back. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing the gospel with them. But I know for sure that as God goes towards them and he, goes and he chastens them, he will bring them back. If they're truly born again, they're going to come back. You know, when I came to the Lord, there was a year, one year that I was just not there with God. I got saved. I came forward. I was at a church like this. I came forward. I was the only person that came forward to give my life to Christ. And then the next week or next month, I, I, I wasn't discipled. And so I just started going back to my old friends and doing crazy things. And so I did not understand what it meant to be a Christian. And so I lived a wild life. I just did my thing. I didn't care. I didn't think about God only on Sundays. And it wasn't until God's great mercy and grace miraculously came upon my life where all of a sudden I got this hunger to learn more about God without anyone coming to me and saying, you need to get right with God. This happened, at least in my life, in a very miraculous way. And so we see clearly that God will go against you if you are in a sin that you're not repenting of. And so we see very clearly that God will do that. But there are times, and maybe you're thinking, but Robert, sometimes, you know, life is so crazy. I feel like God is against me. You know, the things that I go through in my life, I feel like there's, there's a trial after trial after trial, and there's just things happening. You know, we, we have a... a, a, a my, my, my wife has a friend, and this just happened last week. Unfortunately, their two-month-old baby passed away. You know, they went to the crib. The baby was dead. Okay, that's a trial. You're going through it. You're thinking, okay, God, help me. Get me through this. Lord, what's going on? And then last night we get this. My wife got another call that their 10-year-old had a, went into cardiac arrest. They revived her. Your two-month-year-old your, your two just passed away, and now your 10-year-old had a heart attack. What's going on here, God, right? Lord, you're supposed to be for me. See, those things will feel like that God is against you, but that's not the case. You know, there's people in Scripture when it comes to this. uh, For example, Naomi. I mean, Naomi had a tragedy, right? She lost not only her her children, but she also lost her husband. And and she was very clear when she told the people there in Bethlehem that God has dealt very bitterly with me. In other words, God is going against me. But that wasn't the case. God wasn't going against her. And then she comes to that understanding later after seeing what God was doing in the life of Ruth, and she came to, con- to the conclusion of this in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. She says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, speaking of Boaz, who has not forsaken his kindness in the living and, to the living and the dead. She comes to that understanding that, wow, God is for me. God is working something greater here. Another example is the life of Joseph. In Genesis, we see Joseph, the young man, was hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit. Then he was taken out of the pit, sold as a slave, went through that crazy ordeal. And then he goes into this, uh, you know, the, the court of like a pharaoh and, and, he, and he gets into this huge position. And his boss gives him this great position. He's, he's really on top of things. Okay, here's where God is with me now. Things are going well. Okay, that was a hard time being in a pit. I was sold in a slave. Now I am someone... And then all of a sudden, my boss's wife comes on to me. I said, no, get away from me. And then what happens? Then she falsely accuses him as he was the one going after her. And then what happens? He's thrown into jail. And all these things happen in his life. And you're reading the story. You're thinking, man, you know, for, for, from a human standpoint, you're thinking, man, God is really against you. I mean, this is, this is crazy life, Joseph. I mean, you had a dream that God was going to use you. You know, the dream of that you were going to be above your, your brothers and your, and your parents and all. It was really a crazy dream, but, but it was true. And then at the end of the day, that's where God put him. And then he comes to the conclusion, and he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. It's like you guys worked evil, God worked good. 
And so when we are confronted with these situations that are hard and evil and raw, listen, it's not that God is going, yoo-hoo, I love giving you these things. No, God is not the creator of evil. God allows these things in our lives. But God always works the good out of those things, no matter how horrible they are, no matter how crazy they are. God, who is bigger than you and I, has a way to take these horrible situations and work something good from it. And so Paul answers the first question with a rhetorical question. And notice in verse 32, he says, he says it very clearly. I love this part here when he brings in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So now he kind of changes. He says, listen, the cross is the measure of God's love. Look at, he says, look at, Jesus wasn't spared. God didn't even spare his own son to die on the cross for you. That was a horrible death, right? That was a barbaric death for Jesus to go through what he went through for us, for our sins. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus on our behalf to die for our sins. Clearly shows that God is for us, not against us. If God was against us, Jesus would have never come to this earth. God would have said, you know what? Humanity, you're on your own. Try to figure it out. We wouldn't be here today. We'd be all in trouble without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Without the cross, we'd have no hope. But because God is for his creation, his master creation, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we can gain eternal life. And notice he says, he says that he's given us these things freely, freely give. The word freely means to bestow out of grace. And it could refer to forgiveness, which is an act of God's grace, which is one thing that Paul understood very well when it comes to God, when he came to God's grace. He said in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I have labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I love that. That is everybody's story here, that by the grace of God, you are who you are today. You know that? It's because of God's grace, you're a Christian. It's because of God's grace, you know the Bible. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, not only has he given us these things, he says, notice, all things. Now, let me kind of share this real quickly with you. When it comes to this word, all things, this does not include Rolls Royces, private jets, mansions. That's the health and wealth doctrine that they take this verse and they say, see, God has given you all things. So go there and get yourself the most expensive Tesla there is in the market. Not that it's wrong to get a Tesla. I just can't afford one. I've driven one, actually, a few months ago, and it was a crazy experience. I thought I was on a roller coaster driving those things. A friend of mine has, it, has one. But here we see that he's saying, Paul, since God gave the greatest sacrifice of all, his son, he says, he will certainly not hesitate to give believers all other things pertaining to and leading to their ultimate glorification. That's what's, what's, what's in Paul's mind. Philippians 1.6. Remember, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so he answers that question by bringing in Christ. And then notice the next two questions are more legal in nature. Notice what he says in verse 33 to 34. And that's the next no, big no-no, and that is no condemnation. In verse 32, he says it. He says, he who did not spare his own son, which is what I read. Let's go to verse 33. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, he says. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The idea here is who can make a formal accusation in court or press charges, is what he's saying. Satan is identified by God as the accuser of his people. Did you know that? He is constantly accusing you before God's throne. Listen to what it says in Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Day and night. You know, Satan doesn't take vacations or breaks. He is 
constantly accusing us before God's throne. You see, that's the Christian you saved. Did you see what you, they just said? Did you see what they did? Look, that, that kind of really? And he accuses us. And so we see here very clearly that Satan's accusations will be thrown out of court because it is God who justifies. That's the, that's the liberating truth of the Christian faith, is that our sins have been pinned on the cross. We've been cleared from all offenses. And notice what he says. It says, it is God who justifies. The judge himself declares the accused person righteous on the basis of his faith in Jesus Christ. That is such a deep understanding. I wish we had more time to look at justification. What does it really mean? But what, what he's saying here in a practical level, the question is, who would dare bring a charge against God's people? That's what he's saying. And the answer, of course, is no one. No one. When you die and you're before God, listen, Jesus Christ is kind of like your defense attorney. And all your pasts, sins, failures are gone. You're going to stand justified. You're going to stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, not yours, because you don't have any. That is why it's important. To, 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 this is why the gospel is important, because a person that dies without Christ, they're by themselves before God, and that is not a pretty picture. You have to be in Christ because if you're not in Christ, then what happens is then you're paying for your own sins. And in the Old Testament, the animal that paid for their own sins or the animal that was used for the payment of sin was death. And so the person that says, I don't need God in my life. I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope to get to heaven. And you get to heaven outside of Jesus Christ. What will wait for you, what, will, what you will be confronted with is eternal death, damnation, separation from God for eternity. I don't think anybody here would like that. That's something that is a reality as we look into this section here. As a result of all accusations, they're all dismissed, basically, because of Jesus Christ. He's our defense attorney. Then notice what he says in verse 34. He says, who is he who condemns? Another question. To condemn means to declare guilty and sentence to punishment. Now, there's an interesting story in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, actually, where this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. She was brought before Jesus, right? Guilty. And these guys wanted her condemned. He wanted to see how far will Jesus go. Look at this woman was in sin. What are you going to say to that, Jesus? And what did Jesus say? He begins this interesting conversation with this woman. And the first thing Jesus asks this woman as she's on the floor, probably in tears, heart pumping because she's been caught in this act before a rabbi, a teacher... Jesus says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And then the woman said to Jesus, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isn't that awesome? See, before that, Jesus doodled on the ground something that scared off her accusers. I mean, there's so many speculations of what Jesus wrote on the ground their offenses, what they've done, their part in the situation, whatever. They felt guilty, convicted, and they laughed and said, I'm out of here. This guy knows too much about us. And this woman was left by herself before the God of creation, the judge. And Jesus says, listen, I don't condemn you. Sin no more. That's what Jesus did to you and to me when we came to Christ. And we received him. He looked at you and said, you know what? You're free to go. Sin no more. You're freed. And we see here, this is what Paul is referring to here. There's, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation at all. And, and he makes it very clear that the judge will not condemn us because we live by faith in Christ. And so we know clearly that Jesus is God's appointed judge. It says it very clearly. Jesus said in John 5, 22, he said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the judge. So Paul said there's no opposition, there's no condemnation. Now he seals his argument by exclaiming that there is no separation. No separation, he says. Verse 35, he says it very clearly there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Another question. The word separate 
is a unique word because in the Bible, actually the word, uh, in other places in the Bible, it is used to describe divorce between a man and a woman. But here we see that the root word means space or distance is what it means. So what Paul is saying is this, can anything put a distance between you and God's love? That's what he's really saying. That's what the, the, the word here communicates. That is potentially the most critical question a Christian can ask. I mean, think about it. How many Christians have questioned the love of God in their lives? I'm not going to ask you, but if I were to ask you, raise your hand in here. If you have ever doubted the love of God in your life, I guarantee you a lot of you would be like right here. Paul is answering a question here. This is the most critical question a Christian can ask. And the answer, I think, is very important. And he's making it very clear here. And he's asking, is there any distance between us and God's love? Can, can, it, can us, anything put us between God's love? But notice what he says here. He says, with a list of things, and we'll go through these lists here. He says, basically, that this love of God... It's not about our love for God. It's God's love towards us. Because our love for God could, could also be very diminished because of sin. Uh, whatever things can happen that we can lose love. We can fall out of love. But here we're, we're talking about God's love toward us. He's not talking about our love towards God. He's just God's love towards us. But then he gives us seven experiences that have no power to separate us from God's love. And I'm going to go through these seven things um, some of them I'm going to stay very, very brief. Others I'll elaborate a little bit more. So let's look at the first one. He says this, shall tribulation, first thing. Now this word means pressure, which carries the idea of being squeezed or placed under pressure. Man, doesn't that sound like life? I mean, to be squeezed under pressure. Jesus said that in this life, you will have pressure. Tribulation is what he says. The same word, pressure. All of us here understand what it means to be under pressure. And living on this side of heaven with the things that we go through, whether it's at work, at home, whatever situation we're in, we are pressured, right? We experience pressure. It's not fun sometimes. And sometimes people break under pressure. Other people will just hide under pressure. Life is not something to be like, this is great. Sometimes life hits us hard. And I wish Jesus didn't say, in this life, you will have pressure. I wish he would say, in this life, you're going to have a joy fund. You're gonna, it's going to be great. No problems will happen. You're going to have a wonderful Christian life. No, he says, in this life, you'll have pressure, tribulation. Paul says, shall that separate us from the love of God? It, it, it's the kind of adversity that is common to all of us. Trials. There are a lot of people being pressured due to finances, unemployment, health issues, marital problems. Those experiences cannot separate you from the love of God. Isn't that cool? No matter how hard the trial is in your life today, the love of God is constant. God still looks to you in love, with love. He reaches out to you in love. He doesn't back away. You know, sometimes as human beings, when somebody's going through a hard time in life, our response to them is sometimes is, I'm going to stay away from them. They're really going through a crazy time right now. I'm kind of scared, you know. They're going to flip out on me here, you know. God doesn't do that. God doesn't get scared no matter what trial you go through. God comes to your rescue. He's there. He's listening. He wants to help. And this is the, the tribulation. And so can tribulation separate us from God's love? No. Look at the word, the next word, distress. This refers to being Strict, uh, strictly confined in a narrow, difficult place or being helplessly hemmed in by one's circumstances. Again, that, that's life. Sometimes some of our circumstances kind of lock us in. It's like, I can't see anything beyond this. You know, a great example of this was when uh, Paul and Silas were, you know, preaching Christ and they were thrown in jail and they were put in stocks. They were under distress. They couldn't move. They were in this uncomfortable position, and they were there. And what did they do while they were in those stocks? They began to sing hymns. They began to sing songs of praise. You know, when we get to heaven, or at least when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Paul, what was the song you were singing? 
I want to know about the song. You know, Lord, I lift your name on high. What was it, you know? I mean, it's so cool. There's so many mysteries in the Bible that you're like, there's so many things I want to ask when I get to heaven. What was this about? Lord, what, what did you write on the ground? You know, and, and all these different things. And these guys were singing praises. And then what happens right then and there? God met them and boom, miraculously, those chains broke. Again, they were under distress. Can the distress separate you from the love of God? No. It didn't do it for them. They still had a love for God, and God still came to the rescue. Notice the second thing. We kind of know this one. Persecution, suffering because you are a follower of Christ. I, I, I think, you know, in America, we don't understand the concept of persecution. I don't think we've experienced true persecution. We have, we have the, the, the privilege of meeting every Sunday morning corporately here without worrying about, you know, a government that doesn't like Jesus coming in here and saying, everybody go home or you're all going to jail. We've told you not to meet here. You know, there are countries, uh, believers in other countries who are having church today underground in China and other places because they're scared to death because, because they don't want them to hang out out in the open. But in America, we have the privilege of being here together and walking out with our Bibles after this service and to go for coffee and put our Bibles on our coffee table and just hang out and talk about the service or whatever without worrying about somebody saying, oh, look it, they just went to church. They're not supposed to. Call the cops. Get them in jail. We don't worry about that. Now, there are isolated uh, instances of persecution in our nation, of course. Uh, there have been people that have been killed because of their faith in Christ. It doesn't happen much but, but we do have that. But I think the majority of us, including myself, haven't really experienced persecution. To us, I think persecution is somebody cutting us off in the freeway. I just, the Lord, oh, I can't, Lord, what a spiritual battle. If you were next to a person in the mission field, they'd probably slap you and say, you really think this is persecution? I'll take this any day. Persecution. Can that separate us from God? Nope. Hunger, famine is what he says nakedness that's being in need of materially that doesn't separate us from the love of god peril refers to danger in general especially danger from mistreatment sword suggests being murdered killed that won't separate us from the love of god that just helps us get to heaven these things stated in, in increasing intensity do not separate christians from god's love and paul experienced all of these things all of the seven things, he was always threatened by it. And so we see here very clearly that all these things, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, none of that will separate us from Christ's love. And then he goes on to something else. Notice in verse, 30, um, in verse 36, he says something here interesting. He says, for your sake, we are, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He can relate to these things. He's not just speaking, uh, you know, without knowledge, without experience. He does. And then that's what he says there in verse 37. Yet in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, Paul understood. He told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He told that to that young pastor. What a, what a different message from, uh, during the first century church with the messages today that we hear. It's all pep talk, right? It's all like, live your best life today. There's no warning. There's no encouragement. Hey, preach the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. Uh, the Christianity that I see today is, is a Christianity that's more like Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. You just kind of get into the Christian faith and Everything's just great, happy, and I just want to have fun. I don't want anything to happen to me. And, then, and, and these guys that are preaching this stuff, they're not really preaching truth. I'm not saying doom and gloom all the time, but I'm saying you've got to balance it out. And I think Paul here is bringing a good balance to it as he's talking about the love of Christ in the midst of famine, nakedness, and all these different things. He says, none of this stuff separates us from the love of Christ. He's telling us that we are super conquerors. No wonder James declares in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because you're conquerors, because of Jesus. You see, your unsafe friends probably are amazed when they see you praising God in the midst of a trial. When they know that you're going through a hard time, they're like, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to like, you know, 
be at home and quit your job and stop going to church and, you know, disown God because of the trial that you're going through in your life. And you're like, nope, that's not going to separate me from God's love. You know, one person said this, and I quote, we overwhelmingly conquer by coming out of trouble stronger than when they first threatened us. I think that's true. And so after Paul gives us these earthly trials, these earthly elements, notice in verses 38 and 39, he gives us a list of dimensions of created things which cannot separate us. Notice he says, death nor life. These are earthly things. The two things we fear most, life and death, are not threats to God's love. Whether we live or die, we cannot be separated from God's love. That's a pretty strong statement. Then he says angels and principalities. These are celestial beings, things that we don't see right now. The spiritual realm is an an invisible realm. And so these things that are going on in the spiritual realm cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing in all creation falls outside of God's control, even those things that we don't see. So this makes us super conquerors regardless of what may come our way. And so he says all these things that death, nor life, principalities, no things present, nor things to come, height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How, do we, how should we respond to this? Let me close with a few thoughts here for you. We looked at some pretty heavy stuff here. How should we respond to this amazing truth about God's love toward us? This is how you're to respond is to live without fear and live with confidence as a Christian. Live without fear and live with confidence. James, or John, 1 John four seventeen tells us that there's no fear in love because fear has to do with torment. And so the love of God is not a love that should scare us. If it does scare us, then we have not been made perfect in love, as it says there in First John. The fear of thinking that God doesn't love you anymore can be thrown out the window today. You should walk out of here today and never think about that again. When you get hit in your head with that, that God doesn't love you, you can throw it out the window because of this verse here. And if you forget, go back to Romans chapter 8 and read verses 31 to 39, memorize it, and look at this. This is a promise. It's a, it's a stated fact. When the enemy puts that in your head, you know what to believe. You know the truth. Because of God's great love and the fact that nothing can separate us from his love, it should motivate us to boldly approach Jesus in prayer. You know, one of the things that I think is hard for Christians to do is pray when they're going through a hard time. They don't, they don't want to talk to people and they don't want to talk to God. But that is when we should approach the throne of grace. That's when we should go to God. It says in Hebrews 4.16 that we're to approach God boldly. It's a throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's there for us. It's a powerful truth. And so we see that these things that we just looked at are things that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors. You and I can trust God's love. You can trust his love, his love towards you. You know, I read this story about this postgraduate professor big theologian guy. He's been teaching the Bible, New Testament Greek, Hebrew. I mean, he was a very well-known Bible scholar, theologian. And he basically came to the class and he said to his students, ask me any question. And so one student was very curious to know from all of his learning, his knowledge, everything he's gained from, from his studies and his, and his um accomplishments at school, the student said, what is the greatest truth of all your studies that you have ever come across? And the theologian, the scholar said to him, it is this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The love of God, we forget about the love of God. We get caught up with other things and we forget that God is on your side. He's on your side, and, his lo- and he loves you, and it's that simple. It's that simple. There's nothing else to add to that. 
understanding these three big no-nos, in Christ there is no condemnation, in Christ there is no uh, separation, in Christ there is no condemnation. If we can grasp those three no-nos, we will experience God in a deeper way. We will know God much more. We will be able to be more bold in sharing the gospel and living life on this side of heaven. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you're like, well, this is, sounds great. Perhaps you, you've been voided of love. You, you were raised in a home without love, a father, a mother, whatever. And you're like, you know, this love is really cool. I, I didn't know that God's love was this strong. Well, it is. It was so strong that he sent Jesus down on the cross for our sins. And all you have to do is simply receive that love. To look upon Christ and say, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. You died on that cross for my sins. I want to live in eternity. I don't want to confront you when I die by myself. I want to be in Christ. It's that simple. Isn't it cool? There's nothing else. To, I'm not asking for 20 jumping jacks after this. Nothing. The gospel is a simple message. God has left it up to you to come to him. He has spoken it clearly through his word. He doesn't force himself on anyone. And so if you need to get right with God, that's all you need to do. And as a Christian, you're here today and you're like, I've been so off when it comes to God's love. I, I have been really accusing God of not loving me and this and that. You know what? This morning, God reminded you of how much he really loves you. It was a message tailored for you that you can walk out of here refreshed in the love of God. You could walk out of here excited to know God and that God loves you. And that's what you need to understand is that God truly loves you. And if you're a child or a daughter of Christ, man, you're, he's for you, not against you. If you're not a Christian, he will be against you until you get right with him. But as a Christian... He's for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that we have such amazing love described in the Bible. And Lord, we know, Father, that sometimes we get caught up with other things. We forget that your love is this strong. Maybe there are some in this room today, Lord, as I mentioned earlier, have not come to that understanding of your love and today they did this is not something that i made up lord this is not something that i'm trying to convince people this is written in the bible lord and all i did was just present this truth to your body here and lord i pray for everyone in this room that they will walk out of here confident of your love as you have your heads down your eyes closed i want to pray for you if there are some in this room that have never been confronted by his love, and this is your first time listening and hearing this, and you're saying to yourself, I want my life right with God. I want that love. I want to live in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship with Jesus and you want to have that relationship with Jesus this morning, raise your hand. I want to lead you in a prayer. If you're here this morning and your life is not where it needs to be, you know that God has been chastening you. If that's you, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I need to re... I, I just, Lord, Robert, pray for me. I, I, I'm just... The love of God is a hard concept for me because of my upbringing. I need your prayer. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you. If you're here this morning, God bless you. I see you back there. Anybody else? God bless you. Father, I pray for those that raised their hand. And Lord, today, as they walk out of here, Lord, would you remind them of this powerful love that you have for them. That, Lord, that, that the lies that they've been believing are going to be gone, thrown out the window because of Jesus. We thank you so much, Lord, for your truth. We thank you so much, Lord, for your um, love towards us. And as we walk out of this place, Lord, remind us throughout this day, throughout the week, of how precious we are before your eyes. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. So stand.
you are so beautiful. Sing. 